two weeks ago tonight, I began a series of three lessons, and at that time I mentioned to you that I had received an invitation to speak at the Spiritual Sword Lectureship with the theme being Pressing Toward the Mark, with my topic being assigned with joy. I am so thankful that I was given this topic. I probably would never have spent the amount of time researching and digging deep about joy in the Bible had I not been given this topic. And thus came a series of lessons on joy, and the one that we studied last time was evidences of joy. We talked about the fruit of the Spirit. We talked about the fidelity of our sacrifices and how it is a factor in our sharing how that it actually demonstrates itself so that you and I can tell that somebody else has joy in their life. I want to remind you again of an illustration I used at that time. It's probably been 10, maybe 12 years ago that Don and Don and Heath and Tim invited me to go and learn how to play golf with them. They already knew how. And I can remember vividly trying to hit the ball with an iron the first time. And I can remember it jarring my hands. I can remember it going in an off direction. And they were all too uh, eager to say, you're not doing it right. And they were correct. I wasn't doing it right. A time or two since then, I've actually found out that if you hit the ball right, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't jar your hands. In fact, it's rather smooth. I wasn't doing it right. And the truth is, is that I am concerned that many Christians are not doing it right to the point where they take no joy in their faith in the Lord and how it affects their lives. Because so many people, you look at them and you don't see the joy it's like the song that the young kids sing. If you're happy and you know it, then your face will surely show it. In Proverbs 15, 13, a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. If somebody has joy in their heart, you can see it on their face. Proverbs 15, verse 13, or 15 says, All the days of the afflicted are evil. But he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. He finds joy and happiness in the things that he faces in life. Now the lesson tonight is entitled, An Epistle of Joy. And when Paul wrote his epistles, which are actually our letters, he wrote them to individuals and he wrote them to churches that had specific needs. And, for instance, as we study the book of 1 Corinthians, we recognize those brethren really needed to be rebuked for the sin that was in the congregation. And there were a number of them, their misunderstandings, their misinterpretations of so many great biblical teachings. But when I come to the book of Philippians, that is an epistle of joy. The church at Philippi was special to Paul and he wrote a joyful letter to a faithful congregation. Now, I will tell you that I had to work hard to, to, uh, 
pair this down so that it didn't become a three-hour lesson. Um, I will tell you that what I'm trying to do is pair it down to three basic ideas. The first one is fellowship and friendship. You look at the relationship that Paul had with the church and you see that kind of joy because of the fellowship they uh, participated in together and the friendship that they developed. Number two, we will look at this idea of being selfish versus being serving. Selfish people are unhappy. Serving people find joy. Number three, looking at things that should be treasured versus things that are just trivial. So let's engage in a Bible study tonight. Open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Let's begin with verse 3. Verse 3, and let's go through verse 8. And Paul writes, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all for you all with joy. Why? For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as is right for me to think of this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers with me of this grace." For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you read that carefully, you come away and say, Paul loved these brethren. He cared about these brethren. But as I begin to look at the letter as a whole, here's some things I want you to observe. Paul was in prison. In fact, if you look at verse 7, verses 13, 14, and actually also verse 15, Paul makes reference to his chains. Look at verse 7. He says, Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Look at verse 13. He says that my chains are in Christ. Look at verse 14. He says, Having become confident by my chains... Paul was a bound man. And yet, they also identified with that. In fact, they suffered with him, if you will. He tells them in verse 28, And said, Are not terrified by your adversaries, which are proof of them, a proof of perdition, but to you salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, now here is in me. You, brethren, are experiencing the same sort of conflict that I am, the oppression of the Roman government of people like Paul and people like the Corinthians in Philippi, was that that each of them was experiencing it together. And you say, well, that church was not having everything go their way. 
Paul's in chains, and they're suffering. Let me tell you something else their condition is. They're poor, and they're persecuted. In 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 4, he talks about, in verse 2, that the great trial of affliction and the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. When most of us read that about them, we say, they're having a great trial of affliction. They're people in deep poverty. How can they have joy? How can they be happy? And yet they were. And a third thing that you see within the church is is that there's conflict. There's conflict with Paul. Not everybody is treating Paul fairly. Not everybody's treating Paul honestly. Not everybody's treating the Philippians correctly either. In chapter 1, verses 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife. Why are they doing that? He says, the former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. He said, the reason why they're preaching the way they are is to make life more difficult for me. And you might think, well, Paul says, I hope the Lord gets them good. No, he says, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel, and he says that he was going to rejoice that the gospel was preached in verse 18. He tells them in verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come or see you or am absent, that I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Notice he talks, I want you to be one, I want you to be one. Why would he say that? You get to chapter 2. He's saying, I want you people, verse 2, to fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing. You know, there's a, a time in a congregation where people may not always get along. You get to chapter 4 and you look at verses 2 and 3. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you, true companion, help these women who labor with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So you mean there's a congregation that is experiencing persecution? There's a congregation where their people are poor? There's a congregation where there is conflict, and yet, in spite of all that, they're a joyous congregation. Well, I'd suggest to you that if you start looking at the deeper level of this, there is a personal relationship between Paul and the Philippians. This relationship started when Paul began to preach the gospel there. He said in chapter 1, verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The first day was when Lydia was converted. The first day was when the jailer was converted. And you see, they began almost immediately supporting Paul preaching the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 10, he said, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. 
These people were willing to help Paul all through the time. They just didn't have opportunity to do so. And he described them in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. He says, you know that in the beginning of the gospel, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. And he goes on to say, when I was in Thessalonica, you sent once and again to my need. There's a close relationship here within them. We have to realize sometimes the value of our brethren, the joy that we derive from that friendship, from that fellowship. I can tell you quite plainly, without any fear of reservations, my best friends are in this congregation. Those who are closest to me are here. The joy that I get comes not only from the Lord, but from being among you. And when you read the book of Proverbs, chapter 18 and verse 24, a man who has friends must himself be friendly, and there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There is a close relationship and part of the joy that Paul and the Philippians had was that friendship and that fellowship that they enjoyed together. Now let's move to the second idea. If you'll look with me now at verse 16 and then we're going to look at chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4. And Paul says, The former preached Christ from selfish ambition. Now think about that for a moment. Some preach Christ from selfish ambition. You get to chapter 2, therefore if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. What Paul is trying to contrast here is people who are selfish versus those who are serving. Selfish people are miserable. And you say, what do you mean by that? Selfish people are miserable. Many years ago, a congregation that I know very well in Alabama, near where I grew up, there were a few members of that congregation had decided they wanted to take over. They wanted to force the eldership to resign so they could run things the way they wanted to. They began to nitpick the elders. They began to try to say, you're not qualified, you're not qualified. You made this mistake, you made that mistake. It was a constant barrage of the elders. And finally what happened is the elders stepped down and said, okay, if y'all want it, we're, we're out of the picture. What also happened is many of the congregation left to go to sister congregations by saying, we don't want to live in this conflict. 
We don't want to live where people are bickering and, and being hateful toward one another all the time. And eventually they got control. The only people they controlled was themselves because they were the only ones left. Galatians 5 verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. You want a congregation where there's no joy? You try to find people who are going to nitpick one another. Chapter 5 verse 26 of Galatians says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Don't do that. It's going to destroy the congregation. There will be no joy there. The selfish, Proverbs 11, verse 24, there is one who scatters and yet increases more, and there's one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. There's some people who become so stingy, it's mine, I'm going to hold on to it, I'm going to have it, nobody else can have it. And they'll find themselves alone and miserable. No joy. On the other hand, service is satisfying. In 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 12, Paul said for the administration of this service not only supplies the need for the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. When you do something good, you not only help that person, but you actually end up helping yourself because there is thanksgivings to God on the part of those who receive. There is thanksgiving in your heart for the privilege, for the opportunity. And that's the reason why he'd say in Philippians 2 and verse 17, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul said, if I've got this opportunity for me to give myself for you, I am glad to do that. Just like the apostles in Acts 5 and verse 41. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. There are some times that things are tough and difficult, but once you complete them, you realize it was good and service is that way. And what Paul will do is he will say, you want to see the perfect example of service? Look at verses 5 through 8 of chapter 2. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of a man or men. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What Jesus did, he did joyfully in the offering of himself. And that's what he tried to teach the apostles in Matthew 20 verses 25 through 28, and that is that the person who is the greatest among you is the one who serves. Now let's go to chapter 3 and let's look at verses 7 and 8. Let's look at the treasured versus the trivial. 
Paul says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted for loss for Christ. Yet, or yet indeed, I also count all things for loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now, to understand this, we're going to have to back up and read the verses that precede it. But I wanted to read these first because I wanted you to see Paul's looking at life. And he said, I've got this over here that I can choose or I have this. These are my worldly accomplishments. This is who I am and where I am from. This over here is the Lord. These are the spiritual blessings that he offers. You see, many were placing confidence in their pedigree. I'm a Jew, he would say. In fact, not only am I a Jew, I'm I'm an exceptional Jew. He said, beware of dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now stop for just a moment there. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. He's saying, when you're looking at the fleshly things or you're looking at Jesus Christ, don't put your confidence over here. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And Paul says, those things I counted for loss. They're meaningless. In fact, he says, they're rubbish, they're garbage. Because there's something much more important. The treasured versus the trivial. What does it matter, the color of your skin? What does it matter whether you were born in the United States of America or were born in a foreign country? What does it matter who your father was, your mother was, or your heritage? What matters is whether or not you are serving the Lord In both ways, there's a lesson in that. Sadly, some people do not realize the value of spiritual things. Hebrews 10 and verse 34, the writer says, You had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Now I want you to think a moment. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Someone comes to your house and says, are you a Christian? Well, yes. All right, we're going to take everything in your house. We're going to take your television. We're going to take your refrigerator. We're going to take your microwave. We're going to take your couch. We're going to take your bed. We're going to leave you with nothing. Okay? But you can't take my faith. 
He says, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. See, that's where real joy is when I understand the difference between the trivial and the treasured. Back earlier in the chapter, verses 24 through 26, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. He saw how both ended up. That's the reason why Jesus would say, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Things here do disintegrate. Not so with the heavenly blessings. Matthew 16, 26, What is a man profit if he gains a whole world and loses his own soul? Or what would a man give in exchange for his soul? True joy is derived from our understanding the difference between the treasured and the trivial. As a result, we have to make sure that we're pursuing the true prize. One more passage from the book of Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. And Paul would say, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What am I striving for? It's not what's behind me, it's what's in front of me. It's the future. And the future is not in the trivial, but is in the treasure. And this letter shows that you can have joy even when the circumstances are not perfect. Even when one has his freedom removed, Paul's in chains. Even when one is facing death, I can still have joy. Even when one is poor and needy. You sometimes see these people who are suffering the loss of almost everything, and you still see them singing, you say, how can they be happy with nothing? It's because they understand the difference between the little and the much. Even when there's conflict. So you mean that joy is not tied to external circumstances? Yes. You see, if I want to do it right, I've got to quit thinking that joy is attached to me being able to do whatever I want to do. Joy is not attached to me having all the possessions that I want to have. Joy is not attached to me living in a world with no conflict. Where is joy attached? 
It's learning to put things in God's hands. I want you to go back with me now to chapter 4. Let's look at verses 6 and 7 and verses 11 through 13 and we'll extend the Lord's invitation. Be anxious in nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Verse 11 now, not that I speak in regard of need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now here's where we are. I've tried my best to present to you the picture of the book of Philippians with your understanding that the true joy is found in being a child of God and in walking with the Lord and doing what He says to do. And if your Christian has all, Christianity has only been superficial and it's not guided your life, you're not doing it right. If you're not living the life that Jesus called you to live, then you are not doing it right. But you can. If you want to be a Christian tonight, you come forward because of your faith in Christ, repenting of your sins. Stand before this audience and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. That will lead you to be baptized and then into the Lord's church. The Lord will add you to His body to the church. The majority of us here tonight are already Christians. Some of us are striving every day to be faithful. Some of us are failing along the way. And some of us need to make some radical changes in our lives. If you need to become a Christian or you need the prayers of this congregation, would you come together while we now stand and sing?